The California Dreaming Podcast is brought to you by Blueberry. There is more to making a podcast than just talking into your mic and hitting publish. You're going to need a little bit more than that. And I'm talking about reliable hosting so your time can be spent working on your show. You want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I've chosen to use Blueberry. It's simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website. It can't get any easier, especially for someone like me who knows nothing. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give it a try for a month for free. Their dedicated support team will be right there to help you every step of the way. And with one month for free using our promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses to start up that podcast that you keep talking about starting. There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to us on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can support us on our Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 50 episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1 per month. In addition to that, there are approximately eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. This week, I'd like to thank Alan D., Ann B., Melanie E., Stephanie S., Kiki W., Ryan H., Camilla H., Rue A., Melinda C., Beth C., Leslie F., Jen L., Amanda R., Sandra W., and Marie P. for joining Patreon. And I'd also like to thank longtime supporters D. Stickney and Mo P. for raising their pledge to the next tier. A few days ago, I released the sixth part of our exclusive series on Patreon. It's a wild story, and even though it may be one that you've heard before, I do think that I can say when we look back on this story over the past nine years and going over it with a fine-tooth comb, there are definitely some things that you've probably never seen or noticed before. So if you join, you can gain immediate access to that, and it's not even finished yet. We're still going through that story. If you're unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help with a one-time donation through our show using our PayPal at californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going. And please stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear a promo from Jenny, host of Murder Up North. It's a podcast about true crime in Northern England. So listen for that and thank you. Many of the facts and details of this story came from a 1981 New York Times article written by Joan Barthel, who also wrote a book about this case entitled A Death in California. Links to this and other related articles can be found in our show notes and on orbitaljigsaw.com. J. Daniel Walker was a wanted man, and for the cop that was after him, this was personal. Robert Swalwell was a detective with the Illinois State Police, and he had absolutely no love loss for this fugitive. 
The New York Times article described Detective Swalwell as looking like Richard Boone. I did not know who Richard Boone was, so I googled. According to his IMDb page, he was born in Los Angeles on June 18, 1917 to parents Cecil and Kirk Boone. His dad, Kirk, was a corporate attorney, and notably, he was the fourth great-grandson of Squire Boone, who was the brother of Daniel Boone. And if you're not from the United States, or maybe even if you are, you may not know who Daniel Boone was. He is considered to be one of the original American folk heroes, known for being a pioneer and an explorer, a frontiersman. He was also a soldier in the American Revolution. He was captured and held for a time. He dabbled in land ownership and business ventures, but apparently was not very successful. He was also a slave owner, and after his businesses failed to thrive, he decided to leave the United States altogether, but all that involved was moving to the then Spanish-controlled territory known as Upper Louisiana, which is modern-day Missouri. So anyway, Richard Boone, the great-great-great-great-etc-nephew of Daniel Boone, he attended college, he dabbled in boxing and painting, and he also found work as an oil field worker before enlisting in the United States Navy during World War II. Following the war, taking advantage of the GI Bill, he went to New York to study with the actor studio, and he quickly developed into a very serious, methodical actor. His career began on Broadway, along with a few roles on television. 20th Century Fox eventually signed him to a contract in 1950, and he made his film debut in 1951 in a movie called Halls of Montezuma. He was described as being tall and craggy, which is another word for rugged. He was mostly cast in war movies and westerns. In all, he starred in more than 50 films. He also had his own show on TV called The Richard Boone Show in 1963, but it was not very well received. From there, Richard moved to Hawaii. He stayed there for about seven years, but only did a handful of films at that time. During the 1970s, he moved to Florida and worked vigorously to revamp his film and television career, and he did continue to work up until the end of the 1970s, his last film having been in 1979. Richard succumbed to his battle with throat cancer on January 10, 1981 in St. Augustine, Florida. He was only 63 years old, and that would place his death only nine months before this New York Times article that I referenced at the beginning of the story was published. And that was getting way off track, but as I was saying, Detective Swalwell was likened to the movie star. And because I couldn't find any pictures of the detective... I looked up Richard Boone, and you can do so as well, to get an idea of what the officer looked like. On the weekend of February 23, 1973, Swalwell had been tracking G. Daniel Walker, a career criminal who managed to escape from custody. To Detective Swalwell, Walker was evil incarnate, the most debaucherous man he'd ever known in his entire career in law enforcement. You see, Walker had been in prison, sentenced for quite some time for a murder. And for Detective Swalwell, this wasn't just any murder. This was the murder of a fellow police officer and one of his best friends. The detective talked to anyone that he could think of. He searched through the belongings that Walker left behind in his prison cell. 
and it gave him a bit of insight into the man that he was now searching for. But it still didn't give him any clue as to why this man lived his life the way that he did. G. Daniel Walker, and the G stands for Gordon, he was born August 10th, 1931, and that also happens to be my daughter's birthday. They are Leo's. Born in Toledo, Ohio, and by all accounts to a comfortable, stable family, considering that this was right smack in the middle of the Great Depression. His father was in the antiques business. The family was religious. Walker attended church every week. He did well in school. And he'd go on to enlist in the United States Army and served in Korea during the war. After the war, things began going downhill for Walker. The Korean War ended July 27, 1953, just two weeks before Walker's 22nd birthday. He would be arrested for the first time not long after turning 22, charged with armed robbery in Florida. He was convicted in 1954. Walker was again convicted of armed robbery in Ohio four years later in 1958. And over the course of the nearly two decades following his stint in the Army, Walker was stuck in that revolving door of committing crimes, going to prison, being paroled, and repeat. The last time he'd been released from prison was in 1966 from a penitentiary in Ohio. When he was freed, it seems like he tried to get on the straight and narrow. According to the Times article, Walker launched his own advertising business called AdBiz Inc., and it was apparently doing well. He purchased a home located on the banks of Lake Geneva in the state of Wisconsin and was earning somewhere in the ballpark of $45,000 annually, which, when I put that into the inflation calculator, that would amount to about $319,144.41 today. So that's some pretty good money to be earning. Which is why it would seem odd that Walker would begin heading back towards a life of crime. The New York Times called them quirky crimes. He stole a helicopter. He stole a tent that belonged to his neighbor and pitched it in his own yard. So yeah, some pretty weird and petty stuff. Well, the helicopter isn't petty, but... The tent? I mean, he's making a good living, so it's strange, but who knows what's going on with this guy. Maybe the legitimate work life was boring to him, but his crimes did escalate. In 1969, when he was pulled over in Chicago by an Illinois state trooper, the man who was Detective Swalwell's best friend, for what was essentially a routine stop. Walker had apparently presented very well, he made with the pleasantries and the small talk, even offered up his business card for AdBiz Inc. And while the trooper took the card, for whatever reason, G. Daniel Walker shot him in the head, killing him instantly. The detective Swalwell was haunted by this, the senselessness of it all. There was seemingly no reason for Walker to shoot his friend. It wasn't even clear if Walker was doing anything wrong. Perhaps it was normal for state troopers to check up on out-of-state license plates. If Walker was in trouble in another state, it was highly unlikely that that information would have been available to the state trooper. 
At worst, Walker may have been issued a citation, but that hardly seemed to be a thing to kill over. He'd already committed and been convicted of far worse crimes, and things that never really turned violent in the past, so why now? Why the state trooper? Why Detective Swalwell's friend? From all he learned in his interviews with police acquainted with Walker, Detective Swalwell quickly realized that this was the kind of criminal who did the things that he did simply for the thrill of it. Walker's preferred crime was robbery. He liked stealing from people. There were reports that he had used his gun to fire shots at people for his own entertainment, but he never injured or killed anyone. Not that that makes it okay, But the point is, he did these things for fun. Maybe stealing the neighbor's tent was just another one of those things. Quirky, I guess. Another person who knew Walker said that he was told that all of the robberies that he committed were on a lark. In other words, spontaneous, spur-of-the-moment things. One shop owner that had been robbed by Walker told Detective Swalwell that during the course of the robbery... Walker was delivering lines of poetry to him. But all that knew Walker agreed. The man had a gift for gab. He was affable, gregarious, easygoing, quite sharp, witty, and completely and utterly charming and charismatic. So charming, in fact, that while he was in prison in Ohio, he actually wooed the prison warden's personal secretary, and eventually married her while he was incarcerated. Together, they would have one child, but the marriage didn't last, eventually ending in divorce. Walker had no shortage of lady friends, and this included an attorney who was working for him in a civil suit that he had filed against the Ohio prison and its administration. She, too, was smitten with the alluring ex-con. Detective Swalwell, of course, would not be distracted by Walker and his seductive ways. As a matter of fact, he saw right through them. He understood that Walker used people. He manipulated them. He exploited them for his own selfish purposes. And he believed that he was good at it because that's what he did his entire life. Women were his primary target, but the fact was, is that he could charm just about anybody. Which is how Detective Swalwell surmised that Walker was so easily able to gain the trust of his good friend. He had let his guard down. He trusted Walker, which left the opportunity for him to reach for his gun and shoot him in the head before he even realized what was about to happen. Walker had been convicted and sentenced for Detective Swalwell's friend's murder, and he was going to be in prison for a long time, but the length of his sentence, I was unable to find that information. A little more than three years later, Walker managed to pull off his escape. He had been sent to a hospital in Chicago where he was admitted for some unknown ailment, but it was all a ruse. It was his way of getting to a place that had less security than the prison. And apparently when he got there, 
he was ready to party with the nursing staff. Seems like a weird thing, right? But different times, I guess. Somehow, he procured some vodka and orange juice and shared some screwdrivers with the nurses. I mean, can you imagine something like that happening today? It just sounds crazy. Well, sometime on January 31st, 1973, Walker got out of his hospital bed and he went to go take a shower, which was located on a different level of the hospital. And from there, he vanished. While Walker was in his hospital room, he had shared it with another man who was admitted for a few days. For what, I don't know. But several days after Walker escaped from the hospital, that roommate was discharged only to go home to find that his home had been robbed, and this included a number of his credit cards. Within a day, charges were being racked up on those missing cards all over Chicago. Fine dining, fancy department stores, high-end clothing shops. The cards were left active so they could be tracked, and it soon became evident that the purchases that were being made were heading in a westerly direction. Walker was later positively identified by a jeweler in Ann Arbor, Michigan, who was beaten and robbed by him in the days following his escape from the hospital. Among the things that Walker stole from the jeweler was his own American Express credit card, and that was traced to a rental car agency in Omaha, Nebraska, where Walker was identified as the man who rented a car from them using that card on February 14th, two weeks after his escape. That rental car eventually turned up abandoned close to the Denver, Colorado airport. The name of that jeweler in Ann Arbor, Michigan? His name was Taylor Wright. And G. Daniel Walker, now using the alias Taylor Wright, of course, made his way to Southern California because why not? Just a few minutes before 12 p.m. on Friday, February 23, 1973, this was headed into the weekend. A very sharp, good-looking man, dressed to the nines, sauntered into the lobby of a swanky advertising agency called Daily & Associates, located in the Wilshire District area of Los Angeles. Walker knew exactly what he was doing when he chose this particular place, and he knew exactly how he needed to present himself. But with that came a natural charm, and that just came so easily to this man. The Times article said that Walker even topped off his ensemble with a custom hand-carved pipe. He introduced himself as Mr. Taylor Wright. He told the receptionist in the lobby that he was a journalist with the Los Angeles Times, and he had an appointment for a lunch scheduled with a gentleman by the name of William Ashlock, one of Daly & Associates' advertising executives. Walker said that he was working on a feature article highlighting Los Angeles's top 10 most eligible bachelors, and William Ashlock was to be one of them. But here's the thing. While William wasn't married at the time, he'd been twice divorced by then, he was in a pretty serious committed relationship with a woman named Hope Masters, who was 31 years old at the time. And she was the daughter of quite a prominent family from Beverly Hills. The Times article also described Hope as follows, quote, Just over five feet and weighed 90 pounds, 
and for those on the metric system, that's 1.52 meters and 40.82 kilograms. She had smoky green eyes and a small boned oval face, champagne-colored hair streaming past her shoulders, and she looked more like a sultry teenager than the mother of three children. William was 40 and looked 25. He was passionate about fitness, usually lunching on yogurt and jogging three miles or 4.83 kilometers a day. The lunch appointment with the man who introduced himself as Taylor Wright lasted much longer than William had expected. So this caused him to arrive home late that afternoon where Hope had been waiting for him. Don't forget this is 1973, so it's not like he can shoot a text to her that he's running late. Maybe he could have gotten over to a payphone or whatever, but knowing what we know about Walker, the men likely just got so caught up in conversation that they just lost track of time. While William and Hope basically lived together at her home located in Beverly Hills, he still had his own place in downtown Los Angeles. William and Hope, they had plans to set off that weekend for a getaway at a ranch that her mother owned on 500 acres of land up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. She was pretty annoyed that he had gotten home so late, but what made matters worse was the fact that William had invited Walker to meet up with them at the ranch the following day, which was a Saturday, so he could get some nice pictures that he intended to publish along with his 10 eligible bachelor's piece. They got into their car anyway and headed up to her mother's ranch. And as Hope and William made their way, her mood began to improve, as this was one of her favorite places in the world to retreat to, to unwind and to relax. Her annoyance with William subsided. There was still the fact that Walker was coming up the next day, which felt intrusive anyway. And she didn't say, but I don't know how thrilled she was that her man was featured as a top bachelor in Los Angeles. This was supposed to be their time. If it was me, I would not want this reporter coming up there, but whatever. Their plan was to stay in the guest cottage on the property. Her mother would be coming up shortly thereafter to stay with them, but she would be in the main house. Hope and William spent that Friday evening into the early hours of Saturday morning, talking and sipping wine next to the fireplace. They talked a lot about the plans that they had for a future together. Both William and Hope had been married and divorced twice. As a matter of fact, at the time of this weekend getaway, Hope was in the midst of her second divorce. The first time she had a shotgun wedding where she was only 16 years old. Before she was 20, she had given birth to two children. Hope quickly grew bored with husband number one as he seemed as though that he was too much of a homebody. Shortly after marriage number one ended, she quickly married a gentleman by the name of Tom Masters. He was the exact opposite of her first husband. He was fun and exciting, outgoing, up and coming in the world of public relations. Together they would have one child, but over time, Hope came to realize that Tom was a bit too much fun and outgoing. And the Times article hinted that he may have strayed outside their marriage a little too much, and the couple separated. 
even though Hope ended up living in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the country, she wasn't working, but she was getting a little more than $400 a month. Some of that money was from husband number one, some from husband number two, and some of it was from her mother. Hope eventually applied for and received government food benefits. Probably not too common a thing for residents of Beverly Hills. Sometime in the early afternoon hours of that Saturday, February 24, 1973, Walker, posing as Taylor Wright, arrived at Hope's mother's ranch. What would come next came from Hope's recollection of the events later on, and that would become one of the most baffling stories at the time when it came to true crime. Two people from very, very different backgrounds collided. Hope, who was a very complicated young woman, emotionally tender and unguarded, and Walker, a man who had once had a promising future, but somewhere took a wrong turn and used his captivating personality to further his life of crime. And some of the things to come that both Hope and Walker would do would defy logic, as well as raise questions for years to come. The answers to those continue to evade. As the Times article put it, quote, matters that go beyond one murder case into fundamental questions of human behavior, its dynamics, imperatives, and especially its ambiguity. This is a story that would test the veracity and righteousness of our justice system and the manner in which victims of violent crimes are treated within it. G. Daniel Walker, posing as Taylor Wright, showed up at Hope's mother's ranch that Saturday. Again, he was dressed very nice but casual, a turtleneck sweater, an expensive leather jacket, and of course, his fancy pipe. He had an air of affluence and refinement. William introduced him to Hope, and she immediately took note of his sun-kissed skin. This was February, so it wasn't exactly beach season. He told her that he had spent a great deal of time on the slopes skiing. Now, for me, that wouldn't have made that much sense because you are pretty much covered head to toe in ski clothing. Pants and sweaters, gloves, jackets, ski hats, or knitted beanies and goggles, right? But maybe, perhaps, his face was tan. But other than that, I don't really see skiing doing very much for somebody's tan. But anyway, after the introductions, they went inside the cottage. William and Walker sat across from each other while Hope got some hors d'oeuvres and some wine. Eventually, it was Hope who started doing most of the talking. And all of her personal life problems and her drama came pouring out. It was probably a little bit too much information, but hey, you know, she was probably loosening up as she kept sipping on her wine. She complained about her parents, that her stepdad was some kind of uptight lawyer. And I get the feeling for Walker, it was a lot of first world problems from what we know about his background. But he came with a story of his own. He said he was raised in the Midwestern part of the United States, which was true. But that's about where that ended. He said he was now residing in France, that he had been overseas for several years, he was asked by the Los Angeles Times if he would please do this feature article, and he agreed, since he had nothing to do until he was ready to head back to France. 
Hope was curious. Why William? How did William come onto his radar as to be featured as one of his 10 most eligible bachelors? Walker told her that the formula was pretty simple. He drives a flashy car, he flies his own plane, and he glanced over at Hope, and he said that William had fine taste in women. Later on that afternoon, they walked over to a nearby river to take pictures, and it seemed as though Walker was subtly flirtatious with Hope. As they walked, she nearly slipped and fell, and it was Walker who caught her, saving her from taking a spell. She watched as he confidently managed one of the horses on the property. Even though the hired ranch hand was there, Walker soon was telling him what to do. By the way Walker carried himself, Hope was able to tell right away that he was a Leo. And she was right. And she teased him a little bit about it. After the three of them had dinner that evening, Hope mentioned that she was beginning to not feel very well. She had had more wine than she should have, and not to mention she had also taken some pain medications for a back problem that she'd been dealing with. I tended to think that that was sort of a hint for their guest that it was time to go. This was a weekend that she wanted to spend with William after all. But when she said that, Walker, who had been relaxing in a chair in the living room, he really didn't seem to take the hint and continued to sit right where he was. So Hope, seemingly exasperated, told Walker that she was going to go lay down and that she would see him on Sunday. William escorted her to the bedroom, where she told him that she wasn't calling it a night, she just needed a short rest and insisted that he wake her up as soon as Walker left. But that wasn't going to happen. Hope laid down, and she sunk into an almost blackout state of sleep. Because when she was finally woken up, thinking it was William, of course, her room was completely dark, she could barely see anything but shapes. And there was one that she made out standing near her. But then she felt something very cold and metal inserted into her mouth. From the smell of it and the taste of it, she knew that it was the barrel of a gun. She immediately recoiled, turning her head quickly, got off the bed and hurried out into the hallway. She yelled for William, screaming for him. She found herself back in the living room where the fire that they had lit earlier in the evening was dying down. But it was still illuminating the room just enough for her to see William seated in front of it on the couch. At first glance, there didn't seem to be anything wrong with him, except for the fact that he was not responding to her cries for help. He looked relaxed seemingly staring straight ahead. His feet were up, and he was still holding his glass in his hand. He appeared to be asleep. The man she thought to be Taylor Wright, he was nowhere to be found. So she began thinking that an intruder had broken into the cottage. Hope continued calling out William's name, and finally she took hold of him to shake him awake. But still, there was no response. In addition to that, his head slumped back. But he was still not jolted awake at all. He did not bring his head back up. He just sat there, completely still and limp. The dark figure she had seen in her bedroom, 
finally filled her in. William is dead, and he showed her using the dim light of the fire that there was blood all over the place. William is dead, he told her again. Hope became sick to her stomach and attempted to make her way to the bathroom, but the man who was in the cottage with her chased her down and began attacking her, ripping her clothing. The way he was speaking to her, it was not a voice that she remembered ever hearing. Then the man sexually assaulted her. According to the Times article, the man told her with a very grating and menacing voice as he bound her hands and feet, I don't need a gun to kill you. I could break your neck with one hand. I have to kill you. I can't leave you alive. You can identify me. Don't scream. If you scream for the foreman, I will kill you both. He put a blanket on top of her. He pressed the side of his face into hers. And he told her that he loved her. Then she heard a door shut. For a while, Hope was left in the dark by herself, still bound by the wrists and ankles, wondering if all of this was actually happening to her. Like maybe this was the wine or this was the pain pills causing her to imagine these things. Eventually, whoever it was that had assaulted her came back into the room where she'd been laying down. He was much more calm, though it wasn't by very much. His voice still came across aggressively, but he wasn't quite as brutal as he had been earlier. She could see the shape of him, but otherwise, she couldn't see anything else. The panic began to set in again, as she started wondering about William, wanting to verify if he was actually dead, begging the silhouette in the room with her to tell her that William was alive. In a more even and serene tone, the man told her that he is certain he is dead. Hope began to break down, wondering aloud how could this have happened. The figure in the room, perhaps he'd been thinking about this for quite some time. How was he going to answer these questions that she was going to ask while continuing to maintain control over the situation and control of Hope? He told her that there were people after her. That William being dead was simply because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, with her. He explained that it was, in fact, her estranged husband, Tom, who had hired him to murder her. That he had, unbeknownst to her, taken out a substantial life insurance policy on her life and he wanted her dead so he'd be able to collect and he was instructed to make her death appear similar to the manner in which the Manson family had murdered Sharon Tate, and he was supposed to have included her two older children that she had had with her first husband. But he was clearly instructed to allow the youngest child, the one that she had had with Tom, to leave that child alive. If Hope had not already been filled with panic, it escalated even further when her children were mentioned she immediately realized that she needed to go to them. But the silhouette began reasoning with her. I simply can't leave you alive. You'll be able to tell the police who I am. With the safety of her children in mind, Hope promised that she would stay quiet, 
She won't tell anyone anything. The silhouette thought for a moment, questioning whether or not he could believe her, and Hope insisted she wouldn't. The man next removed the restraints and proceeded to take several pictures of Hope with some kind of camera with a blinding flash. While he snapped these pictures, he cautioned her that if he were to ever be identified by investigators, that the group that he was working for would then have her picture and someone else would come and finish the job that he had started. As he turned to exit the room again, it was then when she caught a glimpse of the silhouette and the recollection of his voice that this was the journalist from the Los Angeles Times, the man doing the most eligible bachelor's article, the man who had called himself Taylor Wright. But really, it was escaped murderer G. Daniel Walker. Hope had no idea she had been in the company of a man who was well on his way to becoming a serial killer. She was certain that she would be next, if not by him, than by this group that he spoke of, a group that he simply referred to as the organization. She decided that if she was to survive this, she was going to have to continue talking to him to ensure that she humanizes herself as much as she can. She needed to keep her cool, to not lose it, and perhaps even try to joke around with him like she had the previous afternoon. If this man had been sent to kill her, but still hadn't done it yet, then perhaps she has a chance to survive this. The first joke that Hope cracked was something about getting one last smoke before she's gone. But he told her that she shouldn't smoke. It's not good for her health. Which Hope found to be ironically funny, seeing as he'd been sent there to kill her, yet he's concerned about cigarettes being toxic. When she called him out on this, he too saw the irony in it as well. From there, Hope was fairly certain that if she could continue keeping Walker engaged in conversation, that that would increase the likelihood of him allowing her to live. So she talked and talked and talked. She had already opened up to him yesterday so much about her personal life. And remember, dreamers, I told you it was too much information. Obviously, he was using all of that against her now. But she continued from there. Hope waxed philosophical about living and dying. She spoke about her three children. Whatever popped into her head in the moment, she just said it just to keep this conversation rolling along. And Walker began opening up as well. According to the Times, he told Hope that if she wanted to get to know him a little bit better, then to read the book entitled The Day of the Jackal. He compared himself to the main character of the book, codename The Jackal. The Day of the Jackal is a book, and a film based on it with the same title was released that same year in 1973, and it's about an elite British assassin hired to kill the president of France. The film was remade in 1997, entitled simply The Jackal, which starred Bruce Willis and Richard Gere. 
The original movie would have been released three months after the time this story I'm telling you today was taking place, in May of 1973. Walker referred to himself as the Jackal. Even though he was hired specifically to kill her and two of her children, he said, he began having reservations about doing it. Because this job that he does, he conducts himself within the confines of a strict moral code. He is never to kill any women or children. He never had, and even though he had signed on for this, and he had all intentions of carrying it out, he began to get cold feet. As they spoke, Walker's exhaustion began setting in. He'd been without rest for quite some time by then. Eventually, Hope saw him put the gun down next to him. Then, he decided to lay down on top of her. I don't know if he directly laid on top of her, but I imagine what he did was lay up against her body and then draped one of his arms and one of his legs across her, so she wouldn't be able to get up or run away. He rested his head next to hers, and he drifted off. Whether it was the trauma that Hope had been through, or if it was simply a comfort and solace that was sweeping over her, that she was still alive, that overcame her, whichever it was, she too passed out. When Hope finally woke up, The sun already had risen. The day was bright. When Walker woke up, the first thing he did was lean over in an attempt to give Hope a kiss. But she stopped him, telling him that he should wait. She needed to brush her teeth. This elicited a chuckle from Walker as he stood up. Even though it was now daytime, it didn't lessen the dizzying confusion that Hope was feeling. She wondered to herself, What was last night? They were talking and laughing like they were friends, yet he still continued to threaten her life and the lives of her children. What did any of that mean in terms of how much her life was actually in danger? It was very confusing. Walker suggested to Hope that since William was dead, she could look into being the beneficiary of his social security though that really isn't how that works, but I don't know if either one of them really knew that. Walker contemplating setting her mother's ranch house ablaze and burning it to the ground, and he told her that William told him about a dress that he intended to get for her. Walker made a promise that he would make sure that she still got it. Walker told Hope that he was hungry and then offered to cook the both of them some breakfast but she told him that there was no way she was willing to walk by William's dead body, which remained in the same place where she'd tried to shake him awake the night before, and his head had fallen backwards. So in order to accommodate her, Walker pulled William's body across the living room floor and placed him in another room, out of Hope's sight. Walker continued to play this whole scenario up, in the ways that he'd always had. His charisma was enticing. He seemed to enjoy joking with Hope, wanting to keep the mood as light as possible, all things considered. But the menacing intimidation was never far below the surface. 
After breakfast, he picked something out that he wanted Hope to wear. And she put it on, and they went outside to find the perfect spot for him to take some snapshots. As if she were a model. And they were in the mountains on a rural ranch property, so there was certainly no shortage of picturesque places. After he was satisfied with the pictures he had taken, it was time to leave. He had arrived on the ranch in a brand new Lincoln Continental. It was white. I looked up pictures of a 1973 version of this car, and wow, what a behemoth of a vehicle. I vaguely remember these huge cars because when I was a kid, the smaller Japanese cars were becoming super popular. There were still a few of these monstrous American cars on the road, but take a look at this car. I haven't seen one in a really long time. But from there, Walker drove Hope home, back to Beverly Hills. But he continued to remind her along the way that she and her children were not out of the woods yet. They were being watched by the organization. As long as she was alive, the contract hit on her and her kids would still be active unless Tom Masters himself were to abort the mission. And if law enforcement were contacted, then she and the children were as good as dead. He would do her a favor, though. He was going to try to see if he could call the whole thing off because he told her that he really didn't want to kill her or her kids but he would have to stay by her side to make sure nobody else could get to her. There was a lot of money on her head, so she needed to be kept safe. But regardless of what Walker was telling her, Hope continued to be riddled with fear. She quickly picked up on the fact that the only time Walker seemed to be extremely agitated is when she expressed that she was afraid or if she complained about being uncomfortable or hurting. As time passed there in her home, she began to notice it was as if Walker was attempting to fill the void that William's death had left in her life. From the things that he was saying and doing, she could tell that he wanted her to treat him as though they were in a loving relationship, that she was happy to be there with him, that she cared about him too. So over the course of the next 48 hours, that is exactly what she did. She pretended to be his girlfriend. Her children were now with them there as well. Meanwhile, back in Illinois, the search for G. Daniel Walker was in full swing. They were tracking him as he headed west based on the credit cards that he was using and where he was using them. But in addition to that, Walker himself was seeing this as one big game, and he was in the lead. He was mocking police by mailing letters to his own attorney, who turned them over to them. Letters from Colorado, where he told his attorney he'd been skiing. He'd even taken a bad spill, so to make sure he let the investigators know to keep their eyes open for their escapee with a pronounced limp. And according to the Times article in one of his letters, He told them the name of the hotel and the dining room in which he had had dinner one night. It was called the Oak Room. He had a number of martinis, oysters, turtle soup, a steak, medium rare, and he topped all of that off with some Irish coffees. The thing that was getting to Detective Swalwell 
is that he relied a great deal on his more than 14 years of experience working in the police force in order to develop a deeper understanding of why criminals do the things that they do. He picked up on those nuances and would be able to apply what he learned as he journeyed through his career. I guess we would call it profiling. Like mine hunters. At least that's what I thought of. The time that this story was taking place, this was an era that saw the rise of the serial killer. There were so many prolific ones active before, during, and after Hope's terrifying ordeal. And with it came the concept of criminal profiling. Detective Swalwell spent his year studying criminal behavior in real time as it was happening. He was confident in his work, and he was confident that he had an understanding of the man that he was after, G. Daniel Walker. The detective knew and understood why the letters were being sent, and why he was bragging about the good time that he was having. It was all meant to taunt him. But according to the article in the New York Times, there was something that Walker had written towards the end of one of his letters that struck the detective as introspective. He wrote, One might suspect I am happy. I am not. This carries a price tag. One you never get to see until it's too late. At this point, Detective Swalwell had no idea where Walker was. Much less did he know that he was playing house with Hope Masters halfway across the United States a woman who was in a place, mentally and emotionally, that was exactly what Walker needed. Her vacillation and her self-doubt made her vulnerable and predisposed to suit his purposes. I guess you could call her the perfect victim. And dreamers, if this is beginning to sound a little Stockholm syndrome you're not wrong. Though the concept isn't really ever brought up in this particular case, at least it's not labeled as such, nor do I think it was explored very much at the time. This happened in 1973. The bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden that took place that eventually led to the term being coined, that also happened in 1973. So at the time, it would not have been used in describing Hope's actions here, nor do I think it would be believed if she were to tell it. By the time this book and article came out in 1981, I really can't say if it was even a thing that investigators were taking seriously. The Patty Hearst bank robbery happened the following year in 1974, and she was ultimately convicted and sent to prison, even though it was said that Stockholm Syndrome played a role in her actions. Hope would later describe herself and Walker as being seated next to a fire that he built in her fireplace. She even described his voice as soft and calming, and he expressed his desires to be with her and to help her raise her children. Every night could be spent next to the fire, and once the kids had been sent to bed for the evening, they could sip on some wine and be together. He quietly offered an apology, hoping that she would be able to forgive him for what he's done. She knew what she needed to say. Yes, that it was okay. She forgave him. And there they were, Hope, 
walker, her three children, playing house for lack of a better term. And Hope could see it was all very satisfying for Walker. It was as if what had happened back at her mother's ranch had never even occurred. Walker seamlessly slid into William's place and took over. He cooked, he cleaned, he got the kids settled into bed at night, and over fire and wine talked longingly about leaving his line of work behind. His work of an assassin. He told Hope that he desired to no longer do that. He offered, I don't have to do this anymore. He can get out. He knows that he can just get a regular job. He actually brought up becoming an attorney. And he could stop doing these hits to stop all of this killing. He wanted to know if she liked the sound of that. If he put all of this behind him, put all of this behind them, and if he could conduct himself like a proper, productive, regular old working citizen, if he could prove it to her and do this for the next five years, would she be willing to become his wife? We can only assume that she must have been somewhat taken aback by the question. She barely knows this man, and he did just murder her boyfriend. So for the moment, the best answer that she came up with was she complimented him, telling him that he'd make a great attorney, but she needed to be truthful. She had no idea where she was going to be with all of this in five years' time. It was too soon to say. Several days had passed since that fateful Friday afternoon lunch date Walker and William had where this whole thing had first started. By some time in the middle of the next night, Saturday night into the early morning hours of Sunday morning, William was dead and Hope found herself doing anything she needed to do to survive. By Tuesday, February 27th, Hope was able to get it through to Walker that they probably needed to figure out what they were going to do about William. His body was still lying there in a bedroom in her mom's ranch guest cottage. They needed to go and talk to Hope's mother. She didn't live far, just a little ways down the road. So they came up with a cover story. And Walker reminded Hope, stick to the script or else it's over. And now that includes her mother. Hope's mom's name was also Hope, but her friends called her Honey, so we will call her that in order to differentiate between the two. Honey, upon first laying her eyes upon her daughter, was immediately struck by her appearance. Normally, Hope was pretty well put together. Pretty hair, pretty face. But it looked as though she hadn't bathed or slept in days. Her eyes were sunken in and dark. Her hair a mess. Really out of the ordinary for her. But Hope did everything she could to maintain her composure. She knew that Walker was armed with a loaded weapon as he made himself comfortable in her mother's exquisite living room. The article said Honey had an elegant, plush, yellow velvet sofa. And aren't we glad that we left velvet furniture back there in the 70s? I mean, I am just picturing this sofa in my head, and wow, I can only imagine. But anyway, 
As they sat there, Hope began to spin the story that Walker had instructed her to say. He was listening intently, interjecting at times just in case Hope left anything out or wandered off script. The story was that there had been an intruder at the cottage and William ended up being killed. Walker, who she introduced to her mother as Taylor Wright, had shown up on Sunday. He was scheduled to take pictures of William for his article, only to find that he was dead. So he placed the body in another room out of Hope's sight and saved her from the killers. I don't know how much or how little Honey was buying what her daughter and this man were telling her. But Hope would later say that her mom was quickly and easily dazzled by the handsome, smart, well-spoken young man who had apparently saved her daughter from certain death. But she did wonder, why didn't you guys go to the police once you left the property? Always a quick thinker and a quick talker, Walker jumped in and explained that once Hope told him what had occurred, she expressed her desperate fears for the lives of her children. The killer had given her a specific time at which she would be able to call the police. If she were to contact law enforcement any time before that, he would come back and he would kill all three of her children and then he would kill her. And then Walker looked directly at Honey and he said that she and her husband would be killed too. Walker was emphatic. All of you, your entire family, all of your lives are in jeopardy. The organization had someone perched on a nearby rooftop with a high-powered rifle with a scope trained on your home. And they've planted explosives hidden in places all around your property. But Honey still wondered, and she asked her daughter and this man, well, when you got the kids and they were safely with you, you could have gone to make a report then. And she had a point. You know, she's probably thinking if you're in all this danger... What'd you come up to my house for and get me caught up in this mess too? And Walker explained, You see, that he's not actually from the United States, he said. He was just visiting. And because he had tampered with William's body by moving it around, and he brought Hope with him, a person who would have been a very important eyewitness to this crime, the fact that he did these things would make his ability to travel internationally problematic. He didn't want to get himself in any trouble or implicate himself in this terrible crime that has occurred. Well, when Honey's husband came home, Hope's stepdad, he arrived home from work and they explained this entire sordid story to him. He immediately went to pick up the phone to call 911. And remember, he's an attorney and there's no way he was going to go along with this story. He said he's never been a part of anything like this before, and he wasn't about to start now. But Hope, she lost it, and she lunged toward the phone and placed herself between it and her stepdad, demanding that he stop. She told him they are all in danger, especially her young children. Please don't put them or any of them in that kind of harm. Hope and her stepdad continued with this back and forth over the phone and contacting police. Honey, had been broken down into tears. So Walker needed to do something to get everyone here to calm down. And he was like, okay, everybody, settle down. I will contact the police myself, but it is not possible for me to call them from your house phone here because it's been bugged. He offered to drive over to the Beverly Hills Hotel and use one of their phones to call up the police. And so he got up 
He flashed a quick smile, and then he left. In the New York Times article, the author, Joan Barthel, she pointed out that throughout G. Daniel Walker's criminal life, a number of doctors and psychologists and whatnot had taken the time to study him. At least they tried to. They learned as much as they could about this man, his upbringing, his education, the various crimes that he committed over the years, even getting into the minutiae of what he enjoyed drinking, what were some of his favorite pastimes, if he was religious or not. Walker described himself as a bad-weather Catholic. When his doctor asked him to expound on that, he said if the weather prevented him from participating in his favorite outdoor activities, then, well, it would turn into a church day. He had expensive tastes, but the expenses were almost always paid by someone else, usually credit cards that he stole as he went along living it up. Walker easily made a good impression on everyone, and that included those who had to deal with him as he was in and out of the justice system. Ask anyone, including his probation officers over the years, and they'd all tell you he was extremely friendly, he was very easygoing, he had not a problem developing a good rapport with anybody that he met, he was very smart, well-spoken, and when he needed to be, he was cooperative which was an important component when dealing with the parole and probation system. Walker was never a problem. But not everyone always bought what G. Daniel Walker was selling. One doctor who had treated him while he was in prison put it in his notes that Walker was cunning, smooth, but slippery. In the notes on Walker, it further said, quote, A significant aspect of this man's personality is the ease with which his emotions are stimulated and the extent to which he acts out his feelings in an impulsive manner. Because of his drive, in addition to a manipulative ability, he has experienced occasional brilliant success in the business world. However, this performance has not been consistent over the years, and it is doubtful whether his performance can be consistent unless there is a basic change in the personality structure within the individual. There is an underlying element of rage and anger with the inmate, which occasionally surfaces and results in impulsive and aggressive overt behavior. This individual is considered to be potentially very aggressive and perhaps homicidal. But Detective Swalwell, the man seeking this fugitive, would sum up Walker in one word, evil. According to the New York Times, Swalwell said that Walker was a man who would be able to shoot you dead, then sit down and enjoy a meal next to your corpse. As soon as Hope and her parents were satisfied that Walker was gone, Hope did a thing she didn't think she would have to do for some time to come. She grabbed a pen and a piece of paper and hastily wrote out her last will and testament. While she did that, her stepdad rounded up several guns that he had kept around their home and laid them on a table in the living room, and then he called police. Now, the article I read said that the two youngish-looking officers with the Beverly Hills Police Department arrived within an hour, which to me seems like a long time to take considering they were reporting a murder. But hey, what do I know about BHPD and their priorities, right? Hope recounted the entire story to the officers but she told him the story that Walker instructed her to tell. 
and that she had been at that cottage with William over the weekend. I forgot to mention that the ranch was located near Porterville, California, which is about 160 miles or 257 kilometers away from Beverly Hills, approximately a two and a half hour drive just about straight up north, very close to what is nearly the exact center of California. But anyways, she told the officers about being at the ranch with William when a stranger broke into the home and killed him, that it was a murder for hire, and that her life was saved by someone named Taylor Wright. Law enforcement near the ranch had already been dispatched to the scene. Someone had called them directly, identifying themselves as Hope's dad, and reported that a man had been killed inside the guest cottage on the property. They made their way over there, and sure enough, there was William's body in a back bedroom, and it was clear that he had been dead for days. William was pronounced dead shortly after 10 p.m., on February 27th. Police from Porterville, who responded, soon called the Beverly Hills Police Department. They explained what they had found and were investigating the crime scene. And with that, Hope Masters was taken into custody, suspected of murder. At nearly the exact time that William was pronounced dead, a man arrived at the Avis car rental office at LAX and rented a car. This time, it was a Chevy Impala, another extremely large vehicle that was all the rage at the time. The gentleman paid with a credit card, and his signature read, William Ashlock. Walker was now using items that he stole from Hope's dead boyfriend. Hope was in the county jail for a couple of days until her parents were able to bail her out. It was $50,000. She was out, but things were not any easier at home. She couldn't sleep. She was filled with anxiety. She was up all night. And her children were as equally filled with dread and uneasiness, unwilling to let go of their mom. The kids were loud. They were fighting with each other incessantly. And Hope was fighting with her stepdad. It felt as though the phone would never stop ringing. Hope's mom did what she could to intervene with the kids and Hope and her stepdad, but she was a mess too. There was hardly a moment that Honey wasn't in tears. Everything escalated with every passing day. Every moment seemed louder than the next. The peace and tranquility Hope often sought by going to her mother's ranch? Yeah, none of that was happening, nor would it be anytime soon. What made matters worse is a theme that I often touch on in my own life. And if you're on Patreon and you're invested in the series that we are currently in the middle of, then you know what I'm getting at here. Overbearing mothers. This had apparently been a problem between Hope and her mother for many years, long before this ever happened. Hope carried around a great deal of animosity towards her mother for her incessant attempts at telling her how to live her life. But even though Hope didn't have much when it came to money, she had been on government assistance. She was able to throw it in her mother's face that the only difference between them is the fact that her mother got an allowance from her husband to the tune of $3,000 a month. In the inflation calculator, that would be more than $17,000 today. So who was her mom to tell her to get her life together when she herself is living on an allowance? Making matters worse, 
The story of William's death and Hope's subsequent arrest was making headlines in the local newspapers and news channels. But because Hope was a suspect, the sympathy bypassed her and went straight to her mother and stepdad. They were the ones that began receiving greeting cards and presents and bouquets of flowers. All of it was for them. Nobody understood or knew that Hope was actually a survivor of a very violent crime, a sexual assault, and then the murder of the man that she was hoping to marry one day. Hope was cast as a suspect, a murder suspect. In the Times article and in Joan's book, she pointed out one note that Hope's parents received, and it was a real kick in the gut for Hope. It read, quote, When our children are little, they tread upon our feet, and when they are grown, they tread upon our hearts. Yeah, the public was quick to be judgy. I can only imagine how sensational this story was when it hit the news at that time. So the friction between Hope and her mom and her stepdad, that was already in place long before William's murder. But as far as Hope was concerned, this whole entire ordeal catapulted the tensions between them to new heights. On top of that, Hope was mentally and emotionally beaten down by her own fears. There had been so many things that Walker had told her that she continued to believe were real that the hit Tom Masters had put out on her and her older children was still active, that her mother's house had been booby-trapped with explosives, that they were under 24-hour surveillance by someone who was a sharpshooter with a rifle pointed at them at all times. Hope would hear footsteps all hours of the night, but she tried to calm herself by telling herself that it was probably the private investigator that her parents had hired. Maybe it was law enforcement keeping an eye on the house. But whatever it was, it was continuing to drive Hope's anxiety through the roof. A courier arrived at Hope's parents' house with a small package addressed to her. It was a cassette tape. The article didn't say if they listened to it first and then called police, but eventually Hope's stepdad contacted the two attorneys that he had hired for her as well as the detective assigned to the case. Everyone gathered at the home to listen to what was on the tape. It was Walker's voice, or Taylor Wright, as Hope knew him as. He said, quote, I do not want any member of your family listening in. Too late for that. I do not want any of your lawyers listening in. And it was too late for that, too. I will stick by you to the bitter end and I will get you out of this mess. I will not leave the country. I will not leave the area until I know all the charges against you have been dropped. I've kept track of the kids. I know they're staying home from school. I'm not far away, dear. I'm going to stay close. I'll see you out of this one. Mr. Fixit will get you through. And I found a stunning white dress, size 3. From there, on the audio tape, Walker read what he described as his official account of the events that took place at the ranch, and his story basically matched the story that Hope told police, that he got to the ranch on Sunday, which is when he discovered William deceased, and Hope had been tied up in such a manner that there was no way she could have done that on her own. He said that he would be as cooperative as he possibly could and would provide answers to any questions anyone has of him. 
but the caveat was that the questioning had to take place in a foreign country. He was unwilling to speak to investigators on American soil. And in what I believe was an attempt to add some credibility to his story, he discussed a recently discovered dead man found in a West Hollywood motel that was supposed to have been the man to carry out Hope's assassination, but because he had been paid and failed to follow through on the job, he was killed. Walker went back to addressing Hope directly when he said, quote, Hope, I'm not going to leave you in this trouble. You've committed no crime. You're not involved in anyone's death. I am willing to tell anyone that you were under my control and custody the entire time we were together from when we left the ranch. I'm going to do everything in my power to get you out of trouble. Maybe we can get it straightened out. I'd love to come home to you. Give the kids a kiss. The tape sent a cold chill down the spines of everyone who was listening. Even though the voice on the tape tried to sound loving, affectionate, and devoted, he mused over the perceived passion and romance that he had felt with hope. Those listening could not help feel the cold evilness in his tone. He was trying to play everyone in that room in the same manner in which he'd played hope. He zeroed in on her most intimate weaknesses, her need for a man to be everything she wanted in life to be wrapped in his arms, protected and comforted like a favorite blanket on a cold night. But that wasn't going to work with anyone else listening to this. They knew that it was manipulation, plain and simple. They knew that he wasn't her savior, who had claimed to have rode in gallantly and took her away from evil. He was the evil. But the investigators still needed to sort out exactly what they had here on their hands because they knew the voice on the tape was lying and they knew Hope was lying because they were telling the same story. Remember, she's out on bail under indictment for murder. What investigators were coming to believe is that Hope didn't kill William. They were fairly certain of that. But they weren't buying her story that there was an unknown intruder and the so-called Taylor Wright was some sort of good guy hero in this story either. But they couldn't figure out why Hope was continuing to stick to this story. Why was she still wanting to protect this man? They did not get it. She was no longer under any kind of threat. She wasn't near him. She wasn't under his control. She was no longer being held under duress. So why is she not coming with the truth? And more importantly, why was she going to take the fall? Because this is what is happening here. Unless Hope comes up with another story, she is likely to go down for some of this crime, if not for the murder too. And we, you listening and me, we all understand and know why she's doing this. And we've seen it before. And it is a tough thing to believe, but it happens. When victims sympathize and protect their attackers, they do it out of fear and intimidation. But for these investigators back in 73, this is uncharted territory. The following day, the lead investigator on the case got a call from the FBI with some tantalizing information that they needed to meet right away. Everyone quickly congregated back at Hope's parents' house. 
The FBI produced a photo. It was a mugshot. Honey looked at it. Stepdad looked at it. And then Hope looked at it. And as she did, the words Walker spoke to her over the days that they had spent together began to echo through her mind. He couldn't let her live because she would identify him. That she promised that she would never do that. She promised him. Believe her words. Believe in her. She won't do it. Honey positively identified the man in the mugshot as the man who was at their home a couple of days earlier. Stepdad did the same thing. And as Hope held that photo in her hand, she did as well. Shoving aside all of her fears and all of his threats, she did. That's him. She had broken her promise. That same morning, as Hope and her parents positively identified the attacker, Detective Swalwell was back in his office looking over a letter that Walker had mailed to his attorney. He had put in some newspaper clippings about the story that had been published about the case of William's death, just to fill them in on what was going on with him. He also included in the letter a picture of Hopi. He called her Hopi because her parents called her that. I'm not going to call her that because I don't like it. I like the name Hope. But anyway, he described the picture as having been taken in Hope's backyard at her Beverly Hills home. In his letter to his lawyer, Walker also said that Hope turned herself in to police in order to give him enough time to flee. So he's continuing along with the narrative that he and Hope are in some sort of relationship based on the things that he's saying in this letter. Shortly thereafter, Detective Swalwell got word from the FBI that G. Daniel Walker had been positively identified by Hope and her parents. Swalwell was on the next plane to Los Angeles. Meanwhile, the FBI was planning on using Hope to track down Walker. By this time, she now knows that he is not Taylor Wright, that his real name is Daniel Walker, that he's an escaped convict from Illinois who had been serving time for murdering a state trooper, and they were clear. The only way that they were going to be able to track him was with her. If he called, she needed to keep him on the phone for as long as possible so they could trace the call and do everything that she can to make sure that he stays in this area. The FBI had been set up in their home, but they didn't have to wait long. Walker soon called. Hope picked up the phone. She was visibly nervous, but she answered. Walker asked what she was doing, but he didn't wait for an answer, and he told her that he knew that she wasn't doing well. But he promised that he would get her out of this predicament. She agreed and she very much wanted his help. She told him that she was afraid. She felt like her life was spiraling out of control, and this whole scenario is not looking like it's going to go well for her. She told him that the investigators brought her back up to the ranch house, but they really weren't believing her story. She told Walker that the police had insinuated that this was probably some sort of sexual encounter between the three of them that went wrong. They think that she was into some really kinky things. This made him laugh as he recalled that she wouldn't even kiss him until she had a chance to brush her teeth. He started to say that he needed to go, and Hope asked him if he would call again, and he said he would. He told Hope that he loved her and asked for a kiss over the phone, and then he hung up. Walker made more phone calls to Hope, but he was asking more about police. 
He wanted to know if they had given her any pictures to look at. She tried to change the subject, but he went right back to it. Did she look at any pictures? She attempted to sidestep again, but he stopped her mid-sentence and asked again, has she looked at any pictures? She said that she had not. This calmed Walker down, and he told her, okay, so the police don't know that you don't know who I am. She began to tell Walker to make sure that he took good care of himself. She was trying to sound as casual as possible. She told him that she didn't want him to get hurt over her. She didn't want that to happen to anyone. The silver lining in all of this for Hope was that as soon as Walker would be taken into custody, she would then be out of the woods. This whole thing would get sorted and she would be able to begin the process of healing and moving on. But that very quickly dissipated. A little more than two weeks after this whole thing began, on March 11, 1973, it was a Sunday morning, G. Daniel Walker was captured at a Howard Johnson motel located in North Hollywood, about a half-hour drive, depending on traffic, of course, from Beverly Hills. He was back to using Taylor Wright's identity when he checked in. Detective Swalwell was there to see Walker being taken into custody. The headline in the paper the next morning was the kind of stuff that the media lived for. This was the story of the socialite and the convict. Juicy stuff. And it was far from over for Hope. She was going down with Walker. Hope and Walker appeared together, shackled at the preliminary hearing, to see if there was enough evidence to move forward with a murder trial for both of them. Even though Walker was insisting Hope was innocent, that she had nothing to do with William's death, at the same time, he was also proclaiming his own innocence. The prosecutor made the case for the judge that Hope's story is, in every respect, inconceivable. To make matters worse, Hope's own housekeeper had provided a sworn affidavit that she saw Hope and Walker engaged in a loving embrace in the living room, laying next to each other while Hope rubbed Walker's back. And the judge was like, yeah, there's enough to move forward here with the murder charges. And with that, a month later, both Hope and Walker were charged with first-degree murder. Hope was able to stay out of jail on bail so she'd be able to work at home with her attorneys to prepare for her case. As for Walker, well, he decided to represent himself and he was having a pretty good time in the county jail. He was acting as his own attorney. He was given two cells, one to live in and one to work in. Nice, right? In addition to that, the Times article noted that over in the women's side of the jail, they actually made him a quilt especially for him, and gifted it to him. Must be nice. I wish someone would make me a quilt, but hey, who am I, right? Anyway, what happened next was stunning. Hope's attorney filed a motion to the court to have the murder charges against her to be dismissed. When it came to the case against Walker, there was a lot of evidence that had been gathered over the time that he had escaped, the people that he had robbed, the credit cards that he had used. They found so many things that he had stolen from his victims, including William, in his possession when he was arrested at his motel. And Walker, you know he was fabulously dressed, 
still with that damn hand-carved pipe in his hand, as he presented his motion to suppress all the evidence in the case against him. According to the Times article, Walker called the evidence the fruit of the poison tree. He said that this goes back to his attorney back in Chicago. That was how he was linked to William's murder, through the letter that he had sent to his attorney. Walker claimed that authorities seized that letter illegally. Therefore, everything that came after that as a direct result of that letter, and that included him being identified, him being arrested, and the gathering of all the evidence that he had in his motel and in his car. All of that could be traced back to the letter, and it should be suppressed. In all, Walker's written motion was more than 50 pages long, and he presented it amazingly well, at least according to courtroom observers. And apparently, the judge was impressed too, and granted his motion. All the evidence police had gathered against him was ordered to be suppressed. Now, they had nothing, except for hope. Literally, not figuratively. They had hope masters. Technically, at this point, Walker's own co-defendant. All they would have was her word. Realistically, the only way that that was going to work for the prosecution was if they dismissed the charges against Hope in exchange for her truthful testimony. But the prosecutor was like, hold up, what do you mean dismiss? Everything? Like, what about lesser charges, such as, oh, I don't know, failing to report a murder or something like that? But Hope's attorney wasn't having any of it. He fully believed in her complete innocence and would accept nothing less than a full dismissal of all charges. The prosecutor's back was to the wall, especially if he did not want to see this murder case against Walker completely evaporate. The judge finally stepped in and reminded the prosecutor, the only way that you are going to ever be able to convict Hope Masters of anything is if you are going to be able to provide evidence to the court that she was acquainted with Walker before he arrived at the ranch. Can you prove that? And the prosecutor, probably feeling pretty deflated at this point, had to admit that they had nothing. The judge told him, if you're not going to get a conviction, you better get her cooperation. The first-degree murder charge against Hope was dropped. She now became the prosecution's star witness. And you can probably already foresee how she is going to be treated when she eventually does testify. There were a total of 98 witnesses that were called in the trial that lasted almost two months. Among those that testified, Hope's estranged husband, Tom, her oldest son, who broke the jury's collective hearts with his testimony, Walker himself took the stand and spun an incredibly convoluted tale over the course of two days, and then there was Hope. And she was put through the ringer. Never mind the fact that she survived a brutal sexual assault and was held captive by this man for days. None of that mattered. She was attacked right away in order to destroy her credibility. She was called a liar, and she admitted that the only thing she lied about was Walker's identity. 
and she couldn't say for sure that he was the only one who attacked her because she couldn't see and she thought maybe there was a second person, an unknown intruder. Hope was made to admit that she slept in bed with her attacker the first night, but she still wasn't certain about it being an unknown attacker or walker. We know that it was only him. And Walker was sticking to his story, that there was an unknown intruder, and he was the hero of this whole thing. The outcome of Walker's trial was going to boil down to one thing. Hope. And whether or not the jury could believe what she was saying. Because there was still that part of her, or at least this was the consequences of what had happened, that believed what Daniel Walker had been telling her all along. Let's not forget that this woman had survived being savagely attacked and raped and tormented psychologically, mentally, emotionally, and physically. The hope was that that would not be lost on the jury. And it seems like it wasn't. They heard what she had to say, but what it really came down to for them was whether or not they believed Walker's story. And they didn't. On January 11, 1974, Walker was convicted of first-degree murder. He was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole. He would not be traveling back to Illinois. Detective Swalwell would be going home alone, but hopefully satisfied that his fugitive would never again see the light of day. Hope stopped going to her favorite place to get away, her mother's ranch. But five years after the fact, the five years that she and Walker had talked about, if she would marry him, but no, she wasn't going to marry him. But that was the amount of time that it took for Hope to decide to drive up to that ranch with her kids for a visit. Her mother had told her, look, if you're not going to go there, then I'm selling it. So she decided to go back. And in going back, it turned out to be okay. She stayed in the same bedroom where she had always slept and found it to be comforting. Hope was finally back in her peaceful space. But when she came back home after this visit to the ranch, she cried for days over everything that had happened. William's death... She cried for how she was feeling, the things that she had been through. She even cried over G. Daniel Walker. It was an amalgamation of emotions, and it was coming at her from all directions. The guilt clung to her still. Even though this man had caused her so much pain, he still chose to not leave her holding the bag. He was in prison for the rest of his life, potentially after he swore to her repeatedly that he would not leave, that he would see her out of this. And he did. So she wrote to him. And he wrote to her. He brought up that the inmates could get married, and he proposed to her in one of his letters. She didn't say yes. She didn't marry him. But she did go to see him in person at San Quentin Prison twice over the course of two days. Hope had long come to the realization that this was a thing that nobody could ever really fully comprehend. Hope didn't say what she said to Walker about his marriage proposal. 
In some articles about Jane Barthel's book, it said that Hope had fallen in love with Walker. I'm not completely sure if that's the case, or if it was just some of the residual effects of the psychological torture that Walker had put her through. I tend to think the latter. I just think the media likes to say that she fell in love with her fiancé's killer. It makes for good headlines, right? Well, about three months after Hope had visited him, Walker got married to a nutritionist that worked inside the prison. So, I guess it wasn't as serious for him as he made it out to be. Either that or Hope had turned him down. Daniel Walker went up for parole for the first time in June of 1982. He was denied. He'd go on to be denied a lot. 13 times to be exact. The most recent article I found on Walker was from January 17, 2018. Lucky parole hearing number 13 wasn't so lucky. At the ripe old age of 86, he was given a denial and would not be going up for parole again until he was 91 in 2023. I searched for Walker on the California Inmate Search website and got no matches, so we can assume that he has since died. I just can't find a death date anywhere. I also could not find anything further on Hope Masters. Since this was her last name from her second marriage, her name today, if alive, could be anything. There is so little about this case other than the two links that I've posted in the show notes below. Joan Barthel, the award-winning author of the New York Times article on this case and the book, A Death in California, passed away on January 5th, 2018. Just 12 days before Daniel Walker would be denied parole for the last time. And that will bring this 166th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so already and request to join. It's there we cover the cases that we discuss here on the show. We share our thoughts and opinions, not just about this show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, any news stories or documentaries that you've watched. We post about our pets and funny memes, so please come over and share. And don't forget about the episode, the bonus one that dropped a couple days ago, about Josephine Spiegel. That one, I want to do a follow-up episode. I want to ask more questions of Dee Dee, the woman who shared that story with me. So the post is already up on that. Please go there and post up any questions or comments that you have. You can also go over to California Dreaming's official Facebook page, like the page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an amazing roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of the podcasts in our network as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the promo from Murder Up North. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, 
Sweet dreams. Hi, I'm Jenny, the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor, where Myra Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 1970s. Knowing how geographically close I've been to these crimes, made me curious and that curiosity became this podcast however my main hope is to help you see the person not the victim